0: It's a privilege for my family and I to be here with you this morning and worship with you at Park City's Presbyterian Church. I serve alongside Bill Lamberth, who uh, was the founding pastor of this church. And so it's a a real delight and joy to come and uh, to celebrate God's faithfulness to you uh, through Bill and the many other ministers who have served here so faithfully. Uh, It's an honor to proclaim God's word now to our hearts together. Um, So I encourage you to take your bulletin or your Bibles and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 As I'm sure you know Peter is writing to Christians who have been driven out of Jerusalem and are now scattered, dispersed, living as exiles, refugees throughout the Roman Empire. And Peter writes these words to instruct them and guide them and encourage them in how they are to live in a world that is so different than God's word, in a world that is hostile to them as God's people, how are they to live? This passage then speaks to it. If you're here this morning and feeling the pressures of feeling out and at odds with the world surrounding you, if you feel the pressures of uh, trying to accommodate to the values and the principles of this world, if you feel as an alien and stranger in the midst of this place, these words are for you. Here now from 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Peter writes this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so God, we now pray that you would take this word and that you would feed us and nourish and strengthen us by it. Would you speak to our hearts in just the way that you, by your Holy Spirit, know we need you and know you, we need this word from you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, amen. amen. may be seated. Few months ago, I came across this incredible true story of a Christian from the country of Iran. He wrote this: it "says I was born to a Muslim family in East Iran, where I grew up under Sharia law. My father raised me under the teachings of Islam and Quran recitation." During my teenage years, I found out that Islam could not answer some of my questions. I'd been educated in computers and was working for a technology company, and I would stay late after work and join a Yahoo chat room, which was called God is Love. The concept stood out to me because it was new to me. How could God be love? In Islam, love could not be found in the Allah of the Muslim people. Members of this chat room shared with me the story of Jesus and their faith as Christians. They told me that I was a sinner before a holy God, and they taught me God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. After three months of chatting with them, I was confused. Walking home one afternoon, I decided to pray. I said to God, if you actually and really exist, please help me. Show me the truth. And the author writes, As I was walking and praying, I saw a big sign on a Presbyterian church. It read, Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I became a Christian on that day, repenting of my sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I was so happy. But he goes on and says, but the next two years were not easy for me. I told my father what had happened, how I'd become a Christian. He kicked me out of the house. He refused to attend my wedding. And when he learned that I was using my education in computers to share the Bible in Farsi online, he reported me, the police. What I was doing wasn't illegal, but it was, of course, unwelcome. I was told to leave Iran and never return again. And so along with my wife, I became a refugee, a religious refugee living in exile. Now those of us here this morning will likely never face such hard, Decisions as pledging allegiance either to family or to Christ. Never faced the the, the difficulty and the heartbreak of, of leaving father and mother and country for the sake of following Jesus Christ. But all of us, like the author of this story, like the man who writes these words, all of us are exiles. All of us are spiritual sojourners. Peter is writing in this book to people who are literal, physical refugees and exiles dispersed across the Roman Empire. But Peter also writes to us today as people whom in this world do not find a home. Who in this world do not find our final identity or our ultimate, our identity This world is home to a certain degree, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we too are sojourners. We too must navigate the tension between sojourning in the flesh according to the values and principles and according to our identity called to live in this world, and on the other hand, sojourning in the spirit Living according to the Holy Spirit, living according to God's Word, living according to our heavenly identity, as citizens of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter in this passage is speaking to, to literal exiles, but also to us as spiritual exiles and sojourners. And what he says to us reminds us of our ability and our motivation to live according to our heavenly citizenship. To live and walk and sojourn according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Peter guides us in this sojourn. He he guides us and orients us in this by pointing us not to a certain law, not to a certain behavior. He guides us and orients us by telling us about an event, By telling us about an event, he points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, in sense, it is only from the cross that we can sojourn faithfully through all the temptations of this world. It's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we can finally stand before the throne of God. When God judges the living and the dead, it is only through the cross of Christ that we can be prepared to stand on that great day. You may have seen it already, but the narrative of sojourning from the cross through the world and to the throne, forms the structure of of this passage and of our time thinking about it for a few moments now. First, to be sojourning in the Spirit, Peter says, we must be sojourning from the cross. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ is our point of orientation. It is our home base. Now, Peter doesn't use the word cross or crucifixion in these first two verses. You might have noticed that already. Why is the pastor talking about the cross when the cross doesn't seem to appear in these verses? But if you read verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. That's how the passage begins. That suffering that Peter is describing, the suffering of Christ in the flesh, is not merely Jesus suffering the, the rejection of the world or the temptations of this world not even suffering the the physical torture and beatings that accompanied his death on the cross. Peter is specifically focusing here on how Christ suffered for us on the cross. This verse here in chapter 4, verse 1, is tied to what Peter has already said just a few verses earlier about Jesus' suffering and his suffering on the cross. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, he has said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter is here thinking and speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter employs the language of suffering and Jesus' suffering throughout chapter 1, 2, and 3 in this book, in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 11, 2, 21 to 24, and then three, eighteen. all speaking of Christ's suffering in the flesh. And Peter's preparing us to think about what Christ has done and therefore then how we are called to live. He's saying that just as Jesus died for sin, we who are now united to Jesus Christ have died to sin. We've died to sin. Jesus' death on the cross did not merely set us free from the penalty of our sin, but it also loosened and dethroned sin's power in our lives. As Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24, connecting Christ's cross and our new life in him, he says in chapter 2, 24, speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were once slaves to sin. We've already rehearsed that that fact and that reality and that truth this morning in our worship. We were once slaves to sin, but now we are no longer ruled by a sinful nature. We're given new hearts. We're given a new ability to please God in our flesh, to walk in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. No longer are we only image bearers, but we now have the Holy Spirit within us, reflecting God's character, reflecting God's ways, In our lives, we are able to live new life now with new hearts and a new spirit. As verse 2 describes it, we are now, therefore, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. On many top ten lists of books for last year, for 2016, on many top ten lists was the book The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. It's a novel, it's a story of a female slave named Cora who seeks to escape slavery in the South. And she escapes by getting on a literal underground railroad. Kids, you're probably familiar with the Underground Railroad and how this was not a a real railroad, but was a, a safe passage up to the north on various trails and in various homes and safe places. But in this story, she takes a literal underground railroad, and in this novel, which is a bit of work of science fiction, uh, it it casts this railroad as a, a railroad that leads people, not only geographically, but leads them through time and space into the future, into the future. Now, In that story, like in so many other stories of escape from slavery, the escape happens by Korah's own ingenuity and bravery and courage and resolve. Our escape from slavery happened despite our foolishness. Our escape from the slavery to sin happened despite our rebellion, despite our love of being slaves to sin, despite walking. In opposition to God and His Word, God came. God intervened. God in Jesus Christ, God's Son, made Himself a slave for us. Taking our place. He took all the initiative in our escape from slavery. The Son of God leaving His throne to take our place as a slave, to take our punishment on the cross. Throughout the world, Throughout church history, it's the cross of Jesus Christ which has been the centering logo and identity of the Christian church. But I wonder, as you think about your life as a Christian, is the cross of Christ really that central? Is it really so vital that you think about it, not only on a Sunday, but during the week? Is the cross of Christ so needful in your life? Are you so desperate for the work of Jesus on the cross for you that you read of it? Rejoice in it. Seek to walk in its light and in its power. For us as Christians, our identity is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul would go so far as to say he would, if he was a pastor, he would preach nothing except for Jesus Christ. Him crucified. It is so central to who we are as God's people. It is that thing, therefore, that Peter says here in verse 2 that we should arm ourselves with, to be armed with the truth and the reality and the effect of the cross of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, arm yourselves, therefore, by the cross. With the same way of thinking, for you, because Christ has suffered, you have died and ceased from sin, no longer to live according to passions of the flesh, but according to the will of God. Finding our identity in the cross of Jesus Christ means we don't simply see the cross and trust ourselves to the cross and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified, raised, and returning. It means we certainly do that, repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, dying for us, bearing our sins on the cross. But in coming to Christ, in coming to Christ crucified by faith, God doesn't simply call us to wait until he calls us home. He doesn't simply call us to keep embracing and keep trusting the cross until he calls us home. He also calls us to reflect the work of the cross. To reflect the effect of the cross in our lives. God has called us into this time, into this place. And he calls us to bear the fruit of being people received and changed and transformed by the cross of Christ. He calls us to then go into the world and through the world as people identified by the Son of God, crucified so second, our sojourning in the Spirit to, to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, it begins by being centered in the cross of Christ, by orienting our whole lives, our life story, our emotions, our thoughts, in the cross, and then by from the cross, going through the world, seeking to walk in paths of righteousness for Christ's sake. Now how are we to reflect the cross in our lives. How are we to reflect the effect of the cross in our lives? There's so many things that the Bible says about this. So many ways that we are to, to bear fruit of righteousness as those set free from the power of sin. But Peter here, in these verses, uh, lists some specific examples in verses 3 and 4. He says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter characterizes the Gentile lifestyle with two types of sin, the abuse of sex and the abuse of alcohol. Now let me clarify two things. First, Peter is not against sex or against alcohol. He's against their abuse. He's against their misuse. God gave both sex and alcohol to be enjoyed properly. Sex within marriage, alcohol within moderation. Those things were abused, though, in a certain way in the Roman Empire as these Christians, these people scattered out of Jerusalem, cast into a Gentile world, both sex and alcohol were abused and misused in all kinds of ways in their culture, especially in cult worship. Both of those things coming together with religion in a, in a strange and twisted way in that first century context. But we can certainly testify that those things are still abused today. <laughs> They're still misused and twisted today. Peter was against these abuses, and he calls us to turn our lives and hearts away from them through the power of the cross. Now, the second clarification, the second point of clarification is that Peter is not suggesting that the abuses of these things, that the abuse of sex or alcohol are especially sinful. Rather, he's just saying that they're especially common. They're especially common for these people in this context. They're they're common as we now look back through history of the world. They are common in all times and places. The abuse of these things, certain sins may be more or less severe in their practical impact. as we give ourselves to them, they may, they may bear out more practical damage in our lives. but all sin is equally wrong. All sins equally wrong. You're not less of a Christian if you struggle with sins of sexuality or alcoholism. You're not less of a Christian. You're not more of a Christian if you only struggle with things like covetousness or pride. More invisible. More inward. Perhaps in certain ways, though they certainly get reflected outwardly, in certain ways, more inward. Peter highlights these abuses because they're so common. They're so powerful. They are everywhere. We in the church do not help when we pretend that these things do not exist. We in the church do not help the cause that Peter is on when we pretend that we do not struggle with them mightily. I was reading an article in D Magazine this past week entitled, Is Dallas the Most Christian City in the Nation? And looking at various statistics of of numbers of churches and, and numbers of attendees, and the conclusion uh, was, was basically, uh, Dallas is, in terms of Christianity in Dallas and North Texas in general, uh, Christianity in North Texas is big, it's affluent, it's conservative, but it's also incredibly insular and incredibly immoral. Now, this person writing the article, my suspicion is that they are not a Christian even still, if that's the perception of us in our own city, something continues to be wrong with us as the church of Jesus Christ. What's interesting, though, is that article I was reading was written in 1985. Have things gotten better in our city? Maybe in certain ways. Maybe we're more aware of the problems, but persistently, consistently, we as the church of Jesus Christ struggle against sin. And the worst thing we can do is pretend that we don't. The worst thing we can do is put on a good, happy, clean face and pretend that the struggles are not real or are not powerful. I have to confess to you, this week with this text has been hard for me. It's been hard. That's because there's some tricky theological things happening in the passage. That's because it's a, it's a new place to preach and a new people to see. But it's been hard because these are sins that I am prone to, just like so many other in God's Word. These are things that surround me in my world. This is the air I breathe, the water I drink as a person living in Dallas in 2017. The temptation to live according to the patterns of this world is strong. It is strong. And so I've struggled with this passage thinking, well, if I haven't mastered my spiritual life, I'm supposed to be this pastor of spiritual formation, and if I haven't mastered and totally built up high walls around myself so that I would never think of these things or never be tempted by these things, how can I possibly preach this passage to this people? How can I preach it? Well, all that time I was forgetting the first point of my sermon, right? Not thinking about the cross. Not remembering the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, not my own percentage point of morality or faithfulness. It is the cross of Christ by which I stand before you this morning. It's in the cross of Christ accepted and made new that we can proclaim these words to each other and encourage each other with these things. Every time we look at ourselves and we feel guilt or inadequacy or frustration because we struggle against sin, whether it's these or another, every time we look at ourselves and and feel that condemnation come down, we have to then look at Jesus. We have to look at his cross, of what he accomplished. The Scottish pastor in the 19th century, Robert Murray Machane, said this about that, that balance of looking at yourself and examining your own self and your own life and sins you struggle with and looking at the cross of Christ. He said this. He says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And he's not promoting here that we would never look at ourselves, but rather to fight sin truly, to fight sin powerfully, to remember that we are armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, of sin defeated and dethroned from our lives. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. The cross comes before commands. Theology comes before morality. The indicative, if you're a language person, an English person, grammar person, the indicative comes before the imperative. However you want to say it, we look to Jesus before we fight our sins. We look to Jesus crucified as we endure in turning away from the things of this world and seeking to walk in obedience. You cannot walk in holiness. You cannot walk in holiness and make a bit of impact, a bit of difference, without first knowing, believing, and continually entrusting yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When we sojourn from the cross, we walk through the world as transformed people. We have the ability to turn our hearts and our minds and our lips and our lives away from the sins that Peter has mentioned and every other sin. We have the ability to walk in paths of righteousness for Jesus' sake. Now, there's a lot of children here this morning. I love that. I love seeing children in worship and youth in worship. Kids, if you're thinking about a new school year, whether it's elementary school or middle school or high school or college or graduate school, this is an especially crucial thought for you. You go now out into the world. Go from spending days on end with family and with friends that are probably so like-minded. You go back now out into the world. Some of you even, whether it's to Christian schools or a public school or a private school, you go now out into the world, and there are sins, around you, surrounding you, that you will see and hear that are so tempting, so alluring, and and feeling the pressure so much of wanting to, to fit in and not stand out. No one wants to be weird, right? Unless you're weird. No one wants to be weird. And so you feel that pressure of, I want to fit in. I want to be like. I want to belong. Your identity where you belong, where you fit, who you are, is as a child of God, won by the selfless love of Jesus Christ crucified for you. And you, you have the power to say no. You have the power to turn away from the things of this world and the acceptance of this world. You, like the saints of Hebrews 11, can count mistreatment as better than acceptance for the sake of following and loving and serving Jesus Christ. Now I know this isn't my church, but if you're here today and you're struggling with one of those particular sins that Peter mentioned: abuse of sex, abuse of alcohol. If you're struggling with one of those things in a particular way, I am confident that Mark and the elders. Would be eager, would be gracious, would be prayerful and humble in walking with you in that. The cross not only dethrones the power of sin in our lives, but the cross of Jesus Christ calls us together in one body. And so we struggle and we fight against these things together as the people of God, not alone. When one member is weak, other members are strong. And so may this be a church where the gospel love and gospel hope and gospel purity flow deeply and powerfully. Third and finally, Peter calls us from the cross through the world to the throne of God. You notice there's this kind of narrative arc, this kind of chronological arc to the passage, even just in these four short verses to people who are sojourners and exiles who are on a journey, there's there's an end of the journey coming. There's a destination for the journey coming, and the end comes either when we die or Christ returns and we stand, journey complete, sojourn and exile complete, we stand before the throne of God. Verses 4 and 5 remind us of this. Verse 5 especially, he says, Peter says, But they, and we're included in this, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's saying, in a sense, our lives of godliness matter. They matter here and now between us and God in ways that some people see and some people don't see. Our relationship between us and God, our standing before us and God, our walk of faithfulness between us and God matters. But but it also matters to a watching world. It also matters to people who are brothers and sisters in Christ watching our lives. That our walk of according to the Spirit, our sojourning according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, not only affects our standing before God, but it affects the world around us. And so, and the same breath that he exhorts these people, these Christians, these exiles, to, to live according to their heavenly citizenship, and to to not live according to the pattern of this world. He also reminds them that the world is watching, and the world will be judged. They'll be judged. Living a holy life is not just an internal issue. Here, in this passage, throughout all of the Bible, living a holy life is also an external issue. It's a powerful witness A powerful means of awakening the world to the truthfulness and the reality of the faith we profess. Of the Christ that we exalt. Of the cross that changes us. It's a powerful means of awakening the world and bringing glory to God. All people will come and stand before the living God at His throne and give account to Him in their lives. This past Monday, uh, observing the solar eclipse, I think even more interesting, since we only had a partial eclipse here in North Texas, even more interesting than the eclipse was all of the the buzz around it in our country. Seeing on on social media or news broadcasts uh, how different people are observing and watching the eclipse. The actual event itself wasn't that impressive here. At least to me, I don't know. But think about how it united and connected so many, in so many different places, around one event. Around one cosmic event. Well, at Christ's return, we're all united in an even more powerful way. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And are we, as the church of God, the people of God, preparing people for that great day, for that cosmic event, for the, for the day of them standing before the living God at His throne? The world needs to see two things from us as a church, to be prepared to, to stand before the throne of God. They need to see t- two things from us. Number one, to see evidence in us of a transformed life proof that the gospel is real, that it works, and they need to hear from us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to see evidence of the gospel. They need to hear the truth of the gospel, and that's why Peter ends here reminding us that the gospel was preached to all people, The gospel has been preached and he says it's been preached to those who are dead. Now he's not saying that the gospel is preached to people who are already dead when they're dead but that the gospel is preached to them in their lives and now they are dead. It's a little confusing but the gospel message has gone out from the church of Jesus Christ to all people. We're called to hold it out to all people, to extend it to all people. The good news of the gospel. That's how we Help prepare people to stand before the living God. The day is coming. Are we prepared? Are they prepared? The second most published book in Christian history, besides the Bible, is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. I hope some of you have heard of it, maybe even read a little bit of it. By John Bunyan, Puritan. And this, the climax of this, this story, it's, it's a beautiful story. It fits so well with the themes of 1 Peter of being sojourners, of being pilgrims, beginning from the throne and ending, beginning at the cross and ending in the celestial city. It's a story of this man, Christian, and his pilgrimage from a city of destruction to this celestial city to heaven. But the book has a It ends with a scene of Christian and faithful crossing the River Jordan and entering the gates of the celestial city. And there's worship, and there's praise, and there's rejoicing. If you've read the book, you know the scenes. Quoting from Revelation, uh, all the wonders of this celestial city and of being at home, finally, with God. But the book actually ends not with that scene, but with another the book ends, the last paragraph of the book ends with something that's not joyful, but haunting. Bunyan ends the book this way. He says, Christian was looking back and he saw a man named Ignorance coming up across the River Jordan to the gates of the Celestial City. And he says, when, when Ignorance was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above and then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been given to him quickly. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, where have you come from and what do you want? Ignorance answered, well, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king. He's taught in our streets. And then the men at the top of the gate asked him for his certificate, a scroll that was given to all those who came to the cross. They asked him for his certificate that they might show it to the king. The man fumbled about in his bosom for the certificate, but found none. Then the man at the top of the gate said, have you have none? But the man answered, never a word. And so they told the king, but the king wouldn't even come down to see him. But he commanded two angels, two shining ones, that conducted Christian and hopeful into the city to go out and take ignorance. Bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him up carried him through the air to the door that I saw in the side of the hill and put him in there. And here's how the book ends. And then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. There was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. But what was the difference? What gave Christian and hopeful entrance into the city? What gave ignorance no access to the city? And to face condemnation? judgment, and wrath? Was it a difference in their morality? No. Was it a difference in the degree to which they struggled with some of the sins Peter mentions in this passage? No. It was being counted righteous in Jesus Christ, freely, graciously, by faith. So simple, and yet so hard, for us. The only way to enter heaven is to have that certificate of Jesus' righteousness for us. He must stand in our place. To stand before the throne of God, we must be found in Christ through the cross. As the hymn writer says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, thinking of judgment, thinking of the influence of our lives on this world around us. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil deed, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what Peter's after. Peter, who, who once in public denied knowing Jesus Christ, who once publicly brought shame upon the church of Jesus Christ, now longs for you and for me to live in such a way in this world that a watching world would see that the gospel is real, that the cross has accomplished that for which God designed it, the redemption of sinners and the transformation of saints, and that the world would see our good deeds and glorify God together with us as people made new on the day of visitation, the day of Christ's return. Are there any Baylor alum in the room? Okay. I visited Baylor when I was looking at colleges, and I didn't go there. Sorry. But I read a book by a Baylor professor recently called The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark. It was World Magazine's book of the year last year, 2016. It's a sociologist looking at the history of the Church of Jesus Christ and doing some analysis of of what it was that caused the Church of Jesus Christ to to not just endure through 2,000 years, but to grow and to become the world's most significant, most influential, most dominant religion. What was it sociologically that that caused this? He, He has fascinating things to say on it, but at its heart, At its heart, the triumph of Christianity is a church made new through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a church made new by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that church going and living and giving witness in word and in deed to the power of the cross of Christ. Towards the end of the book, he he quotes the epistle of Dionysus from the second century. This, This epistle that was written uh, from a Christian to another person about Christians, about how Christians were living in the world, even though they were few in that day. He says, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens Of heaven, They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet they, in their very dishonor, are glorified. They are evilly spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and yet they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. And to sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that Christians are to the world. And Christians and the church of Jesus Christ living faithfully out of the cross in the world Bear witness to that. We call attention to the cross of Jesus Christ. The story I read earlier of the Iranian Christian that we began with ends this way. Now exiled, now living as a refugee, he writes, at first we lived in Turkey, and then we were allowed to come to the United States. We moved to a city called Dallas, Texas, and soon joined a PCA church. There are over 60,000 people in North Texas who speak Farsi. And so now I am studying to become a PCA pastor in order to plant a church for them to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The power of a life transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ in the world, preparing for the great day of the Lord, preparing to come to the throne of God, let today be a day of salvation, let today be a day of sanctification, let today be a day of rejoicing in the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your Word. We praise You for the promises of the Gospel. We praise You that we in Christ are made new. And Father, we ask that today that You would give us hope, that You would give us joy, and that You would send us out from this place fed and nourished and strengthened to live as Your people in this world, not for our own glory, but for Yours. Father, we pray that Your kingdom would come, that Your will would be done on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, may we, your church, be faithful towards that great end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.